Uh, Last week, we started a series called A Better Story, and if you missed that message, the the point of the series, it's about a 10-week series, is to know what is this better story, how does my story intersect with God's story, and then ultimately, how do we engage with the stories of those around us? How do we build bridges? That's basically the outline of the series, and if you missed that message, if you have not seen our series trailer, which was created by our media team, and it's amazing, you can download our app, um, our church app, as well as going to the website, and you can watch the first message there. But um, we did talk last week about the power of story, how I could stand up here and communicate a bunch of facts to you, but as soon as I begin to tell a story, I get your attention. That's just how we're wired. You, you, you lean in and your imagination wakes up and our emotions begin to engage in what we're hearing. Stories invite people into a journey. And in fact, stories are, I think, primarily where we make sense of our lives. Not with theoretic, theoretical concepts or abstractions, but to be able to envision ourselves entering into a reality. Unfortunately, though, um, The church is often known more for opposing what's bad than celebrating and sharing what is best. We know we need to make a difference, but we have these decades-old apologetic methods that have, we've noticed, stopped working the way they used to. And I think in my experience, it's because they were built upon assumptions that the world no longer shares with the church. And Christianity, which was once respected and celebrated and seen as a place where people could find answers, is increasingly viewed as a threat to society. And so in place of telling a better story, we as the church get quiet, maybe out of fear, or instead we get busy and we fight political battles, or we try to defend the Christian way of life. Meanwhile, as I shared last week, Hollywood is producing one compelling, beautiful story after another, which is actually what's moving the hearts and minds of people and carrying people along. But rather than having this series be taken as a sort of disparaging of those stories or diminishing their beauty or their value, I want us to just understand the power of them to change us, to shape us, to determine what we love and what we go after. Because this series, on the one hand, um, we're going to have stories that have so much to be celebrated. And you're going to hear some of that this morning. These themes of redemption and sacrifice and stories of, of intimacy and love, which, by the way, are all borrowed from the Christian story. But then, on the other hand, you're going to hear the consistent message, if you pay attention to the stories of culture, that there is no truth except what's true for you. The encouragement to pursue your authentic self. That's the highest goal. It doesn't matter what's around you. You're free from any expectations outside of what you feel. That is the message of our culture increasingly. And these messages are woven masterfully into the music, into the movies, into the shows that we enjoy and we love. And three that I think are the most effective in in my understanding or my opinion is, uh, first of all, commercials which are kind of obvious, and I think we're getting a little bit savvy to what we're hearing in commercials, which is why I've noticed more and more commercials telling stories. You ever see a commercial where it's like, this is a show, and then you're like, oh wait, no, it's a commercial. And that's because they know that our hearts follow story, and we lean into those moments, and we're more receptive 
to the message. But then you have a commercial that, that the primary message is be unique, be yourself, and then they're telling you to buy this car that everyone else is also buying, right? There's, there's contradictory messages or um, another a category of media that is, I think, very effective is comedies. How many of you like comedies? Okay, how many of you like to laugh? Come on, right? Like, put your hand up. Everybody loves comedy, right? Um, but something to be aware of is that when I'm laughing, I'm harder to offend and I'm easier to deceive. The last one that came to mind are cartoons. Did you expect that? Cartoons, I think, are the most effective way to shape the next generation with different messages. And, and one of my kids said, Dad, we don't notice that stuff you're talking about. And I thought, well, that's maybe why it's so effective. Again, my goal is not to say, don't enjoy these stories, but to tune into the messages. Because as I shared last week, there's a rise in radical individualism. That is not the same as individuality, which God created and celebrates. But where there used to be a balance between the individual's desires and what's good for the whole, now, if you question individual sovereignty, is what I would call it, with anything, sociological study of the negative impact of certain lifestyles, if you try to question or express any kind of concern, if you even point to biology that no longer carries authority, those all take a back seat to the moral quest to pursue whatever's true for you. And so the church, again, I think wants to respond. We want to respond. We want to make an impact but we don't know how without being called haters, which, by the way, is what happens today if you disagree at all. It's tempting, as you hear this, to feel discouraged. Does anybody feel discouraged? <laughs> it, it's natural to feel discouraged when you see this widening gap between the church and the world, and we start to ask, how in the world are we going to reach the culture? How are we going to reach people as the church? But something that is good news to me is that all these stories for all their, their plot holes, for all of the unfulfilled promises, share so much in common with the Christian story. And sometimes we can, you know, hear something when we're talking to somebody we don't agree with and we're listening for that thing that we don't agree with and then that's, that flips this trigger of like, oh, you're the enemy. Rather than noticing the things we have in common and saying, interesting, you care about justice. <laughs> Do you know where that comes from? I was thinking about movies like Star Wars. Anybody like Star Wars? Any Star Wars fans? Or um, the Marvel series. There's a billion of those out. Um, Harry Potter series. You know, these are wildly popular movies and stories. And they all have certain themes in common. Good and evil. Which culture currently says cannot be defined. Absolutely. And yet everyone loves it. They know it. They're rooting for the good guy. Sacrifice and service, which I pointed out last week, make no sense in our evolutionary worldview. If I'm here because the strong survive, why in the world would I sacrifice what's good for me for someone else? Forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation. Do you know where those come from? They don't come from culture. They come from Christianity. They come from the Christian story. And so the world needs from the church not to hear you're wrong, but they need to hear a better story. So one of the goals of this series, and, and hopefully I can 
ride this line between speaking directly to stuff going on in culture, which I know is going to tick some of you off. I'm sorry in advance. But also fostering a sense of empathy for the world that we often see as the enemy. To, to, to try to get into their world a little bit and understand people are just trying to make sense of their own story. We're all living in this confusing landscape of contradicting narratives, and I think we're affected by that more than we're willing to admit sometimes, even as Christians. Seeking many of the same things as the world, we all want to flourish, right? Asking some of the same questions of identity and purpose and where do I fit, Who do I, where do I belong? The difference, though, sadly, is the world is left trying to find answers in a depressingly hopeless worldview that's not even asking the right questions. And it reminded me, as I was preparing for this series, of a puzzle. How many of you like puzzles? Like puzzles? So here's this gets to the prop, right? Okay. Um, I don't know that I like like puzzles, because I was really trying to think about it, as much as when a puzzle is set up on our table, I can't not work on it. Anybody resonate with that? But I've got a few puzzles here. I've got a puzzle showing a, a lovely um, oceanfront property. Might sound really nice to some of you right now with the temperatures dropping in Montana. Uh, I have a puzzle with beautiful, let's see, which, which way do you hold this? Rainbow-colored fish going through a river. And then, um, of course, the old classic uh, female deer eating a carrot off a snowman's face. Puzzle. <laughs> but life can feel a lot like trying to put together a puzzle. One day at a time, one decision at a time, and you've got things where you're like, I have no clue where that fits. I'm just going to put that over here. Uh, and we all have pieces that have been added to our box. We have pieces that have been put in there from our parents. We have pieces that have been added from our environment growing up. Uh, those of you who have uh, gone to maybe higher education or even any education have pieces put in your box in those seasons. And depending on where you went to school, those pieces can be really different. Um, sadly, traumatic experiences, things that happen to us, become part of this picture, whether we want it to or not. And then, of course, there's what I think of as the frame and the outline of the puzzle, which is your worldview. How do you make sense of all of this? Where does this fit in the picture? And that's what the worldview is. You ask yourself, who am I? Why am I here? What is all this for? Where is this headed? But as hard as it can be to assemble a puzzle, um, how many of you have ever got to the end of the puzzle and you realize that there are pieces missing? How do you feel? It's frustrating, right? And, and, and you're down on the floor digging around and, and maybe you're raising your voice at the people in your house. Who took the last pieces of the puzzle? It's these moments in our lives where we look at the puzzle, we look at our lives and we say, I know something should be here but I never got it. Maybe that was affection from a parent. Maybe it was the affirmation of your dad. Maybe it was seeing conflict modeled well. We're all missing pieces from our box, right? But to make matters even worse, as if that's possible, <laughs> have you ever been working on a puzzle especially if you have kids, no offense kids, we've got six, so um, it's just kind of a reality, but you're working on a puzzle and you, you find pieces that don't fit. 
Some, some of you are really struggling right now. <laughs> Don't worry, this will be a really sweet challenge later to kind of pull this together. You find pieces that don't fit, like you're doing an underwater scene and you come across a, a buffalo head or something. You're like, oh, what is going on? But this is how I picture people many times in our culture, and we're, I think, more in that boat than sometimes we realize, who, by the way, are made in the image of God, which is a whole different set of pieces that people often don't even recognize as a part of their picture. Notice how for the image of God, I chose the oceanfront property, but... Um, I was going to mix all these three together, and I knew some of you just would, it would lose your mind. So <laughs> I'm going to spare you that. You just envision it, right? But we were, we're made in the image of God, but then we are told overwhelmingly, there is no God. You are it. And then the worldview behind that that says you are an accident of nature, therefore there is no logical basis for purpose, and yet people constantly feel this desire to pursue and find purpose, and then there's even cultural pressure to uh, pursue these things like saving the planet or solving world hunger or helping the marginalized, which again doesn't even fit with the worldview they've been given. And then when it comes to the value of life, we have dramatically contradicting narratives where we as a culture can spend millions of dollars saving a whale or relocating a giraffe where at the same time 73 million Babies a year lose their lives in the world to the ones who have sworn to protect life. 73 million, if you're doing the math, which probably none of you are, but 200,000 today in the world. Friends, this is not about the science, as I've talked to people and engaged with them on this. You only follow the science when it's convenient for your argument. We know they're human babies. It's about... The quote I shared last week that what the heart loves or wants, the will chooses and the mind finds a way to justify. Friends, we love our convenience. We love our freedom. But again, even as I lean into these moments, I think as the church, we can, <laughs> there's this angstiness, or maybe you're not in the church and you're like, dude, this guy's way off. It can stir things up, but what I want to again come back to, this isn't the world attacking the Christian story <laughs> or attacking our way of life. This is the world trying to make sense of their own story, trying to have things work in a world that is desperately broken. And that is why we're actually here, church, is to tell a better story. And speaking of the story, we are going to actually get into it. This morning, um, we're just going to take the very beginning of the story and ask one simple question with a brief bit of time that we have together. Because if someone has never heard a story before, you tell them about a story and they're like, I've never heard that. You wouldn't hand the book to them, open to the middle and say, here, good luck. Right? You, you'd go to the beginning of the story and you'd say, let's, let's read the beginning of this story. And I would say with this particular one, if all you read was the beginning of the story, you would have a pretty good idea of what it's about. Um, I had to share this anecdotally. My wife is an avid reader. She's really fast. I'm not so much. Um, I asked her last night. She is on her 95th book this year. Um, and, and I could share the list with you. It's not a bunch of like kid Bob books or little kid books. You know, these are really legit books. Anyway, I, on the other hand, I have a lot of books. 
and I have read some of them. Some of some of them, maybe I should say. Um, and my wife actually sent this uh, meme to me last week. I had to share it, or a couple weeks ago. Does anybody relate to that at all? Okay, how about this? Anybody, when they start a book, you have to finish it. Come on, there's just a few. How many are fine taking one bite out of multiple apples? Okay, good. Hey, I'm in good company. So uh, this morning, we're just going to take a bite out of this story and ask one question. Who's the main character of our story? Who's the main character? People in the church might be like, well, I already know the answer. It's like the Sunday school moment. Jesus, you know. God's the main character, but I, I think when we examine the reality of our lives, it's maybe not quite so simple to answer. Because think for a minute, if we get this question wrong, imagine your favorite story, a book or a movie, um, and I don't know if you can come up with one. I hate these imagine moments in sermons because it's like, well, you just keep talking. I can't think. Anyway, maybe you've got a, uh, an actor or someone where you go, that's my favorite movie. What would it do to the movie to totally remove that main character from the story? It would destroy it, right? It would make no sense. And I was thinking about it like that puzzle where we take out the most important pieces of the puzzle and then we say, here, figure this out. Put this together. So it's critically important. And so this morning, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Um, it's literally at the beginning. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Don't worry, I'm going to pick all these puzzle pieces up later. But um, open up to Genesis 1. We're just going to look at the first five verses answering this question. Who's the main character? Would you pray with me as you're turning there? God, we thank you. Um, thank you for your humor, that you are a God who laughs and loves, but also who grieves the brokenness. God, I pray as your church, who as, um, sometimes can just be known as sort of these people who have the answers, and we're telling the answers, and we're trying to get people to agree with the answers, God, but sometimes the heart of Jesus is lost. I pray that, God, we would not separate truth from grace or grace from truth, but that we could hold those together perfectly as you, Jesus, so perfectly embody those qualities. I pray as we um, take a bite out of this story this morning, Lord, that we wouldn't just read a story and, and for many of us reread something we've read hundreds of times. I pray that by your spirit you'd speak life. Open our hearts, God. Lead us in what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis 1, verse 1, appropriately says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, the water. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and, the, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. That's all we're going to read this morning, the first bite of the story where we see abundant evidence right off the bat of the main character of our story. 
something I found out this week I, I did not know previously is that God is referenced 31 times in the 31 verses of this first chapter. It is without question a God-focused chapter in a God-focused story. But I was also reflecting on the fact that in order to have a main character in a story, you don't just start the story with a character. You have to have some setting, right? Where, where is the main character? Like in a movie, you've got music fades up and typically on some scene, right? A hillside or an ocean view or maybe it's some uh, house in the middle of the field. But there's a setting and then you get some characters. Um, an example of this, recently I was reading... Um, John Steinbeck's East of Eden, one of his novels, and in case you're wondering, I did finish it. I finished the book. Um, But in this book, he spends the entire first chapter only on the setting, the Salinas Valley on the California coast. And he talks about the mountains, and he talks about the fields, and he talks about the flowers and and all the animals. And then he, he even talks about the sunshine before we even get to a character in chapter two of this story. But our story is different. It's unique because if I asked you, what's the setting of our story? You'd probably say, Earth, yeah, Earth. Or or maybe the universe, right, if you want to think of it that way. But look again at verse 1. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, the heavens and the earth, and then the sun rose And then God rode in on a horse. (laughs) The reality is, friends, God himself is the setting of our story. And I was trying to think how to word this in a way that would be memorable but also not make our heads hurt. Earth is not the setting for God's story. God is the setting for Earth's story. Think about that. God is all in all in a way I can't comprehend, in a way we we don't understand. And I think the closest we can come is something that Paul said to these religious men in the Greek city of Athens. He enters into the city, and it's obvious these are a people who are trying to make sense of their story, and they're trying to find a better story. And the most obvious evidence of this is Paul comes in and there's this altar with an inscription on the altar. And the inscription said, to the unknown God. (laughs) And if that isn't a cry for help, I don't know what is. That's their way of saying, I know we're not here alone. I know this wasn't an accident, but I don't know who God is. And I need someone to tell me. (laughs) And Paul proceeds to introduce them to the main character of their story. One of those lines in his introduction in verse 28 of Acts 17, he says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. And now he's speaking to Greeks who just love this kind of stuff. They love philosophy. But it is fascinating that Paul does not say, because of him we live. Through him we live, which I would say are both true statements, but in him in God, the setting of our story, we exist. And, and guys, I hope this isn't too philosophical because it is critically fundamental when we're trying to understand our own story and thinking, as we often do, that God is someone that we need to find a place for. 
We need to, well, I probably should insert God into my story somewhere when the reality is you wouldn't have a story if it were not for God. God is the setting of our story, but who is this God? We're just going to look at a few things, three points this morning. In the beginning, it says God created. We'll learn in future weeks that God wasn't lonely. (laughs) He was in perfect, eternal relationship with himself. He didn't need any of this. He had no obligation or pressure to make any of this. It's because he is creative. Which, if you bring that down to our reality, what does creative mean? It means you have a vision for something that could be, and you have the ability and the resources to pull it off. That's literally how we've gotten just about everything we see today. That's, That's the story behind every song and every movie that's produced and every house that is built. There's a vision in the mind of a creator, and then it is carried out in reality. And what this shows us at the very beginning is that the Christian story, at the very least, is a better and more rational explanation for where we came from. It just is. And and let me illustrate a little bit further. If I asked you to provide an example from our everyday lives of someone having a creative idea and it leading to something new, could you give me an example? Yes. Right? Say yes. Yeah, thousands of examples. The, the, the pew, or what do you call that? What's the church? That's the churchy word. The seat you're sitting on. The phone in your pocket. The building that we're in. This, this, all of it is an illustration of the logical reality that something comes because of a creator and because of a creative vision, right? We know that. What if, though, I asked you to provide me an example of something that came from nothing by itself. We can't from our reality. And certainly not without previously existing materials or a creative vision. I saw a social media post a while back of this amazing butterfly, and I tried to find it, I couldn't, so I'll just tell you about it. Fantastic. It was, it was so colorful. Amazing, not only because of its beauty, but because of the instinct the butterfly could fly from this place to that place to that place and then find its way back and then would have babies that would be born with the same instinct. And it's a really fascinating story. And, and the title of the story was A Miracle of Science, which, to be fair, is a contradiction, right? I, I get that it's clickbait and I clicked on it and I read it, but... Science doesn't perform miracles, right? But, but we, 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 we're feeling the, the limits of what science can explain and going, oh, gosh, this is amazing. We'll call it a miracle of science, right? But I scrolled down, and as I was reading the comments, I found one comment where somebody had the guts to say, isn't God amazing? And, and guys, the best way I can describe the comments that followed, which, why do I do this? Why do we do this? I don't know. The best way I can describe the comments is that you'd thought this person threatened to murder everyone's family. I mean, I'm not not kidding. They were shamed back to where they came from. But you know what the Bible says? Every house is built by someone. Do you agree with that? It doesn't matter if you agree or not. It's true, right? (laughs) Every house is built by someone and the builder of all things is God. Basic logic. We don't have to think very hard about that. 
You see, if, if you walked into a house and you heard a group of people talking in the living room and you went in there and they were saying, how amazing are these nails? And, and this drywall and the paint, and how crazy is this that it all came from nothing and found its way together? <laughs> and then if you just said, hey, it might be a builder. Who's the crazy one in that story? See, later in the book of Hebrews, it says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. Now, that in itself is a reality check, a humbling one, that every single one of us has faith. Every one of us believes by faith. The question is, who or what are you placing your faith in? But the story goes on. God created the heavens and the earth, and how was this earth? The earth was formless and void, or empty. Uh, raise your hand if you have an unfinished project. <laughs> raise your, both hands if you have more. Okay, yeah, lots of unfinished projects. And I was thinking about this. How, why would God, who has all of the power and the imagination and the vision and the resources in the universe, beyond the universe, why in the world would God create the world formless and empty, unfinished. The only thing I can come up with is God loves story. I, I don't know why, but I, I resonate with that. I, I, I love story, and I think God loves story, not just creating, in other words, and saying it's done, but the progression of his creative vision. And frankly, isn't that what we love about a good story? What's going to happen next? How many of you, if you're watching a movie, want someone to walk in and fast forward to the end? Nobody. Why not? You'll, just, you'll, you'll know the end. You can move on and save some time. No, 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 no. Or, or, or there's a pre-recorded football game and you're trying to watch it and someone goes in. Oh, did you hear that they won? Right? You're just, it ticks you off because we're made to enter into this journey of discovery. We were made for story. God models it in his own character in creation, formless and empty. And we're like, is that it? And he's like, uh, just wait. We're made for, for leaning into the unexpected, twists and turns and the tension and the resolution and the ups and the downs. Now, to be clear, not in our own stories, please. Right? Um, we'll spend a whole week on that. Plot twists is what we'll call it. But it's a part of who we are. And it, listen, it's a part of how God works. How many of you have ever wanted God to fast forward? The other thing, though, about this unfinished moment, which I think is just beautiful, is it's the perfect opportunity for God to prove that formless and empty isn't a problem for God. In those places we feel disordered or chaotic or we're overcome with emptiness, or we don't feel like we belong, all over, over, and over in the Christian story, we see God never leaves us there. Whether it's the wilderness or a desolate place or whatever it's called, it, this is simply the backdrop which enables us to see what God is capable of. Story after story, the Israelites coming up against the Red Sea and being like, what? You brought us here to kill us? You think God knew what he was doing? Oops, I didn't know there was a sea there. God leads us to these places that feel formless and empty so he can prove to us what he's capable of. 
Because the story continues past formless and empty. It says that darkness, another experience we can relate to, was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I picture like this buzzing. You know, you drive under a power line, it's like and you're just like, oh, you know, there's like energy there. But again, God could have just fast-forwarded this uncomfortable moment of empty, of unfinished. He could have removed the uncertainty and taken away the discomfort. But in these moments, God is hovering with power and with purpose, but also with timing to his purposes. And we see that timing arrive in verse 3. God said, what? Let there be light. And there was light. God's word meets God's spirit. Change happens. The first time, so he, he creates light. And one of the things we see here, not only is God creative, but God is committed to his creative work. He doesn't stop at formless and empty and dark. The story's not over. And unlike that, and unlike that stack of books on my shelf, God always finishes what he starts. He's creative, he's committed. A third point I would like you to notice in this passage is God is powerful, which may feel obvious, but God not only has the will and the desire to bring about change, but it's not hard for him at all. He has the ability to fill our emptiness, to order the chaos. Maybe not all around us, but absolutely he promises as Flynn shared so well this morning, to address that going on in us. To light up the darkness. God can do this. And then after this initial stroke on the canvas of creation, let there be lights. Verse four says, God saw that the light was what? Good. The first value statement in the entire Bible. God made light and notice he doesn't say this will do. He said, this is good, meaning, that word means pleasing, fun, beautiful. Who's on board with that? The light is good. See, God didn't create a world, friends, that would work. He created a world filled with wonder. He wasn't trying to conserve his resources or expedite the process. He spared no expense and he enjoyed every single moment of creation. And it might be obvious from the Bible if you've read any of it, but the reason the light is good, the reason every other day says that God saw that it was good, why? Because God is good. Because God is beautiful. Because God is creative and fun and loves things. Every single time, I was thinking of examples of this where I just picture God smiling Every time a scientist discovers a new insect or a species, every time a flower is discovered where there's a color combination you've never seen before, every new advance in technology using materials God's provided us with, or every time he manages to make yet another human being that's totally unique from the previous 100 billion or so that have lived. God loves this. I read recently something that blew my mind that only 10%, um, we've only discovered 10% of the species on the planet. 
I had to like verify that. I was like, no way, 10% is the estimate. I don't know how they get to that estimate. Every year, we discover another 200 new species on the planet. Did you know that? Like this rainbow-colored fish found last year in the Maldives. Last year, this fish that God's like, yeah, it's been there all along, or, you know, at least for a long time. Why is all of this here? Because God is good. Because he, he loves this, this process of discovery. He loves beauty. He loves variety. He loves seeing us pursue things. I think this is what David meant when he sang this worship song to God in Psalm 119. And he said, you are good and everything you do is good. But there's some tension that comes into the story at this point. Because when you look around the world today... Is everything you see good? No. No, we know that. And that is, in fact, one of people's greatest objections. Why would a good God allow blank? And you know, sometimes the church, we can hear that and be like, well, you just don't understand theology or whatever. But I think it's an opportunity for us to say, that is a good question. And it's a, it's a hard one. It's a valid question. You say God is good? I see this. Those don't, those don't match up. And we're going to talk about that in future weeks, the puzzle, if you will, of God's goodness and our rebellion. But as we close this morning, I want to end with a simple question taken from this initial bite of our story. And it's simply this. Who is the main character of your story? And again, as, you know, as a Christian, I, I want to fast forward to the answer and be like, well, God, of course. But I was then thinking Based on the stories that I've read, the movies I've seen, how do you know who the main character is? Like by the end, if someone said, who's the main character, how would you, what would you base your answer on? I thought of three things. There's probably more, but one of them is the main character is the most visible, gets the most attention in the story. Is that God for you? The main character is also the most influential in shaping the narrative and typically through his or her words, directing the action and people hear what they say and respond or don't respond, but that's the centerpiece. Who is that for you? Shaping your story with their words. The main character is often, maybe not always, but often and usually played by someone who is known and loved and people often go to the movies to see that movie just because of that character, because of that actor. And so my question is, who holds that place in your heart? Is it God? Is it your spouse? Is it a child? Maybe it's not a who, it's a what. Maybe the main character of your story is your job. That's where all the action is. That's where the episodes focus that's where your hopes and dreams are tied up. Maybe we could all on some level admit it's more often than not me. Would you pray with me? Lord, we um, read in your word that the heart is deceitful. That it, it, it can tell us something that feels right but is actually leading us away from what's right. But then in the very next line, you, God, speak up and say, I search the heart and I know the mind. This isn't hard for you, God. And so we pray 
Uh, not that we would be able to sort all this out or answer these questions, but that we could open up our hands and our hearts and say, Lord, search me. Know me. Lord, remind us of your goodness and your love and your commitment to your creative work in us. And God, as hard as it can be, reveal any offensive way in us and lead us in your everlasting way. Amen.